Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So, this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's the 20th of July 1969 and while the world holds its breath to see if man will land on the moon, the Vietnam War waits for no man. Life magazine has just published one of its most controversial cover stories called Faces of the American Dead the article comprising page after page of photographs of each and every one of the 242 soldiers killed in a single week. Confronting such horror daily, GIs are understandably eager for distraction and they love visits from the many female-led pop groups that crisscross South Vietnam. And tonight, at the Marine Staff and Officers Club at the First Force Reconnaissance Company base, a few miles from the coastal town of Da Nang, about 75 men are enjoying an Australian variety act called Sweethearts on Parade. This troupe has seven members. There's Clive on drums, Rick on guitar, Jimmy on organ, and Jeff, who's a singer and comic master of ceremonies. But... Unsurprisingly, it's the sweethearts that the Marines are here to see. There's Jackie and Natalia, both gyrating in sexy go-go dancer outfits, while the band is fronted by knockout blonde Kathy Wayne. Since about 8 o'clock, this little dynamo, who's something of a TV star in her native land down under, has belted out pop, rock and soul hits. Now, at 9.20, she's just finished the last song of the show. With the music stopped, 
Kathy has the microphone in her left hand and is about to introduce the members of the band when there's a sound like a whip cracking. With her right hand, Kathy grabs at her left side. She says, oh no, oh, and then falls to the stage. A few Marines think that somehow this is part of the act. The band member's first thought is that Kathy's been electrocuted by the microphone. Then soldiers shout for everyone to get down because there's a sniper. Amid the confusion, panic and fear, Kathy's bandmates rush to her. She hasn't been electrocuted. Kathy's yellow dress has blood on it and, pulling up the hem, they see a bullet hole in her left side. The band members call for help for a doctor, but it's too late. Kathy Wayne is already dead. To paraphrase the Red Gum song, she was only 19. I'm Michael Adams and this is Forgotten Australia. When momentous events take place, they dominate newspaper headlines and radio and television news broadcasts. With pages and time limited, stories that might otherwise make the front page or lead a news bulletin get pushed back. So it was in the third week of July 1969 when Apollo 11 landed on the moon and Neil Armstrong took one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Men on Moon announced the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald in the huge type usually reserved for the start of a war. Kathy Wayne's death didn't make that day's newspaper, even though she was shot nine hours before the world learned that the eagle has landed. The next day, the Sydney Morning Herald's front page told readers, flight from Moon begins, and also that at Nui Dat, two Australian soldiers had been killed by landmines. Kathy's story and photo was found on page five of that edition beneath the somewhat victim-blaming headline, Toured Against Advice, Singer Shot Dead in Vietnam. Kathy Wayne, that was her stage name and her birth name wasn't too different. Catherine Ann Warnes was born on the 7th of December 1949 in the southern Sydney suburb of Arncliffe. Her dad, George, was from England where he'd worked as a mechanic for Bomber Command. Migrating to Sydney after the Second World War, he'd met and married local girl Nancy and they'd had three children, John, Kathy and Mark. Kathy attended Athelstane Public School before going on to Arncliffe Girls High School. Taking classes in singing and dancing from an early age, Kathy was good at both and from age 12 showed off her skills both at school concerts and in stage shows in the local area. Growing up when she did though, Kathy's education also came from the musical revolution then sweeping the Western world. Pop, folk and rock and roll were exploding and reached Australian shores from the mid-1950s with the likes of Bill Haley, Little Richard, Buddy Holly and Jerry Lee Lewis touring Sydney, paving the way for even bigger acts in the early 60s, 
including Peter, Paul and Mary, the Beach Boys and, ultimately, the Beatles. But it wasn't just imported acts that had Australian kids excited. We soon had our own homegrown young luminaries, such as Johnny O'Keefe, Cole Joy and the Joy Boys and teen star Little Paddy. All this was happening just as TV was taking off and from 1958 onwards, Aussie teenagers with access to a television couldn't get enough of the variety show Bandstand. By 1965, Kathy was doing more than just watching the action. She was part of it. In the closing months of that year, aged just 16, she was a contestant on Bandstand's Starflight talent competition. The grand prize was a trip to New York City to cut a single for Mercury Records. In December, having made it through the semi-finals, Kathy performed in the grand final and came second to winner Helen Reddy. While Kathy hadn't won, by early 1966 she was a bandstand regular, or, as young host Brian Henderson put it, part of the show's family of entertainers. By today's standards, Bandstand's production was pretty rudimentary. Kathy had to lip-sync to recordings of her own songs as the cameramen shot the sequences on black and white film, which was later converted for broadcast. Kathy had real talent, with her rendition of You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman a standout. And the camera loved her. Performing catchy novelty track The Name Game in February 1966, Kathy looked angelic, all dressed in white with her short blonde bob as backing dancers bopped about. But when Brian Henderson tried to banter with the girl who all this year would be known as the bandstand baby, as he put it, it was clear that Kathy was still just a shy kid, a kid who didn't get his joke about her getting her bookings through Alcoholics Anonymous. This was a play on AA, Cole Joy's company, Artists Agency, with Cole having signed Kathy, getting her work playing in clubs that she legally wasn't old enough to be in as a customer. When most girls her age were still at school, Kathy was busy working. She toured with Cole Joy as a support act, played a big bandstand show with other stars at the Sydney Stadium in October 1966, recorded ad jingles and, to ensure a regular income, she also worked in AA's office. In March 1967, when African-American star Leslie Uggams toured Australia and did a TV special, Kathy got her own solo and did a duet with the imported celebrity. Kathy did other TV specials, but she attracted the most press in late May when it was announced that she was to be part of the latest and biggest government-sanctioned troupe to tour Vietnam to entertain Australian soldiers. These weren't high-paid gigs, with performers receiving a small amount and all expenses covered. The real reward was in doing your patriotic part to support the boys. On the 7th of June 1967, exactly six months before she turned 18, which made her far younger than the youngest men who'd be in her audience, Kathy and six other entertainers flew to Saigon via Singapore for a 10-day tour. Now Kathy was a teenage girl in a war zone, but... Scary as that sounds, she had no real need to worry. 
Government-sanctioned tours, called official concert parties, were heavily protected and conducted under strict safety guidelines. They might have been relatively safe, but from the crazy hustle and bustle of Saigon, a city of seven million people that felt like it was under siege, to being with troops in the boonies, where artillery and choppers with the soundtrack to daily life, performers still experienced an adrenaline high, enjoying and even coming to crave the feeling of adventure. There was nothing like it back home. A 1967 television news report of this tour shows Cathy on stage in front of some 4,000 young Australians at Nui Dat. This is Barry Gilman reporting from the Australian Task Force base at Nui Dat in Fuktui province. The men thrilled to have a female diversion from the heat, humidity and cloying masculinity of the war. The diggers especially enjoyed her version of Nancy Sinatra's hit, These Boots Are Made For Walking. During the tour, Cathy also visited wounded soldiers in Vung Tau Hospital, feeling it was a privilege and honour to be able to brighten these men's lives. While Cathy wasn't one of the many entertainers who became hooked on Vietnam, returning again and again or even moving there, the experience did stay with her. Back in Sydney, Cathy found it hard to sustain regular singing work and when she recorded a few singles, they didn't make the charts despite her television profile. In February 1968, as the Vietnam War entered a new and deadlier phase after the Tet Offensive, Cathy's life was turned upside down when she met a muso named Clive Kavanagh. Eleven years her senior, Clive was a drummer from New Zealand where he had a wife and children. Through their mutual friendships in the music scene, Kathy and Clive sometimes played in clubs and by June that year were head over heels in love. His plan was to divorce his wife and marry her. Kathy adored Clive, though her parents were said to be less than enthusiastic about their daughter being involved with a married man. In autumn 1969, with everyone struggling to get regular gigs and maintain cash flow, one of Clive's bandmates, keyboardist Jimmy Taylor, hatched a plan that might keep everyone sweet for at least a few months. Jimmy's idea was to put together a variety show and tour Vietnam privately. It wasn't a radical scheme. Plenty of Aussie and even more American acts were doing it. So it was that Sweethearts on Parade was formed. The troupe comprised Clive on drums, Jimmy on keyboards, Rick Hoare on guitar, Jeff Howison as comedian slash MC and singer, Jackie Edwards and Natalia Wallach as go-go dancers, and Kathy as the lead singer. They'd each be paid $500 a month for the three-month tour. It wasn't a fortune, but it was about twice what the average Australian man earned at the time. Kathy and Clive thought that the money might be a bit of a nest egg to get them started as a married couple. While they and the rest of the band were enthusiastic, not everybody supported them heading off to Vietnam on their own. Since 1967, the war had intensified and this time they wouldn't be under the protection of the Australian Army. Cole Joy warned Kathy against going. So did her parents. But Kathy said 
she'd be fine. After a few weeks of rehearsals and a few warm-up gigs, Sweethearts on Parade flew out of Sydney on the 26th of June, 1969. 500 bucks a month was decent money, but Kathy, Clive and their bandmates would earn every cent, expected to do up to three shows a day. When they arrived in Saigon, they stayed in a villa in a colourful and chaotic neighbourhood of hawkers and hookers. Having been shielded from this sort of scene previously, Kathy was reportedly frightened and relied on Clive for comfort and security. Beyond this immediate environment, it's also not hard to see why she was a bit scared. The Vietnam War had changed in the two years since her first visit and become perhaps unwinnable. Last time she'd been here, she'd been singing for boys who might be dead tomorrow. Now she'd be singing for boys who might be about to die for what was a lost cause. And Kathy knew that what she and her bandmates were going to be doing for the next three months didn't come with any safety guarantees. A year earlier, on the 5th of July 1968, a teenaged Californian pop quartet called Brandy Perry and the Bubble Machine had been driving themselves to a show outside Saigon when they were ambushed and cut down by machine gun fire. Two male performers were killed and an American soldier who'd been with them was also mortally wounded. The band's guitarist and its female lead singer were badly wounded and only survived by playing dead. In the last days of June 1969, Sweethearts on Parade got into the swing of things by playing a few shows in Saigon. Their song list was diverse, including the likes of Girls Go By, Love Child, In the Midnight Hour and Time Is Tight. But the group, like every touring act in Vietnam, would bring the house down by playing The Animals' We Gotta Get Out of This Place, which was an anthem to GIs and diggers and especially rousing for short-timers, that is soldiers whose tours of duty were almost finished. On the 1st of July, the band hitched a ride on a C-130 transport plane to their next stop, the big US base at Chu Lai. It was dry and dusty, and the accommodation was basic at best. The band didn't love being monitored by their military chaperones, nor the constant thump of artillery and the wail of sirens. But over the next two weeks, they played 20 shows. On the 15th of July, the Sweethearts hitched a plane ride further north to perform shows at bases around the town of Da Nang. It was there that Kathy confided her big news to Natalia. She'd fallen pregnant to Clive. She was going to keep the baby, she said, and marry Clive as soon as he got his divorce. Sweethearts on Parade stayed at the French colonial-era Grand Hotel on the Han River. While it didn't quite live up to its name, it was certainly a step up from the dormitories of Chu Lai. The band played a few shows around Da Nang and on the afternoon of the 20th of July ventured across the river to enjoy a few drinks at a club. 
That night, they were to play at the Staff and Officers Club at the First Force Reconnaissance Base at Hill 34, a few miles out of Da Nang. The atmosphere in this camp was boisterous. Many of the Marines had pretty much had the day off, and an oversupply of Budweiser had arrived, meaning the place was awash with beer. As the sweethearts readied themselves for their show, which was scheduled to start at 8 o'clock, Clive Kavanagh talked to two Marines, asking them if they could get him a weapon. Clive said he wanted to be able to protect his wife, referring to Kathy. The American Marines said sure, they could get Clive whatever he wanted, an M16, a 38, a 45, a silenced weapon, anything. Additionally, these men told Clive that they hated a particular Marine Major who was inside the club and, perhaps jokingly, said that maybe Clive could do something bad to him if they got him a gun. The club that the Sweethearts was playing was strictly for Marine staff and officers, but enlisted men could still watch the show from outside through mesh screens that flanked the stage. At the back of the stage, a major's quarters was to be used as a dressing room. It was here, as Kathy, Natalia and Jackie were about to get changed, that the two Marines arrived with an M16 for Clive. The American soldiers were drunk and not allowed to be in this area. Natalia told them to leave because she and the girls needed to change, but the Marines didn't take any notice. Then the keyboardist, Jimmy Taylor, intervened and threatened to call the military police if the soldiers didn't leave. The Marines beat it. And though it was a minor altercation, it was also highly unusual for any sort of argument to take place between entertainers and soldiers. Sweethearts on Parade took to the stage for an audience of 75 men with more crowding outside the mesh to watch the girls sing and dance. The stage was just a foot off the floor and only a few feet from the low chairs that made up the front row, which were reserved for the camp's brass, Company Commander Major Roger E. Simmons, three other majors and a Lieutenant Colonel. At 9.15, the band played their final song, reported at the time as being Stevie Wonder's soul hit, Uptight. When the song ended and the music finished, Kathy was about to introduce the members of the band when there was that sound like a whip cracking. Oh no, oh, she said, clutching her left side before falling to the stage, microphone still in her hand. Natalia ran to her, pulling the microphone free, thinking Kathy had received an electric shock. Clive rushed to his fiancée's side. In the audience, Marines shouted to get down because there was a sniper and other band members hit the deck as soldiers scrambled from the club for the safety of foxholes. Someone killed the lights, but even so, Natalia had already pulled up Kathy's bloody dress to see the bullet hole in her side and now she was calling for a medic. Clive cradled Kathy, kissing her, telling her she'd be alright. But Kathy had already bled to death. The bullet had pierced both lungs and sliced through her aorta. In the moments that followed, the band members were escorted and even carried to foxholes and bunkers. But fear of a Viet Cong sniper soon gave way to something more dreadful. The whip-crack sound 
It was familiar to some of the Marines present. It was the noise made by a low-velocity, small-calibre round fired with a silencer, rather than the very different sound made by a high-velocity, larger-calibre bullet from an unsuppressed AK-47, the weapon typically used by the Viet Cong. The evidence was right there on the stage beside Kathy's body, a 22 caliber bullet that had evidently passed through her, but after exiting her body had not had sufficient velocity to penetrate her dress and had fallen out onto the floor as she collapsed. The inescapable conclusion? Kathy Wayne had not been shot by an enemy sniper outside the wire. She'd been shot at relatively short range by one of the Marines she'd come halfway around the world to entertain. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Within 15 minutes of the shooting, agents of the Criminal Investigation Department of the Military Police started investigating, and they were soon assisted by agents from the Office of Naval Intelligence. What they discovered was that it was common knowledge among the men that one of the few 22 caliber pistols on the base, for this sort of weapon wasn't authorised for combat use, had gone missing from an office the previous month and had not been found. But it was also well known around the camp that Corporal Robert Stockham and his best friend Lance Corporal Ronald Prohaska had around the same time come into possession of an illicit 22 caliber pistol with a permanently affixed silencer. Stockham and Prohaska's 22 was a dodgy gun. It was pitted with rust had no magazine and a defective slide return spring that meant each round had to be inserted and locked into position individually. It also didn't fire some of the time. Corporal Prohaska was questioned about where he'd been when Kathy Wayne was shot. Prohaska said he'd been in his quarters. He also told investigators that he'd been playing around with the 22 earlier in the day, even firing around in his quarters, and that for this he'd been reprimanded by Sergeant James Killen, who told him to put the pistol away because someone might get hurt. Prohaska, through his ownership of this illicit weapon and lack of a strong alibi, rose to the top of the suspect list. His best friend, Corporal Robert Stockham, was also considered a person of interest. But the sergeant, James Killen, was also on investigators' radar, and he was awoken from a drunk, dead sleep to be questioned. It's likely that Killen was initially of interest because investigators had been tipped off that he'd been seen earlier that evening with Prohaska's pistol... 
Killen admitted that he had borrowed the pistol earlier in the evening with the intention of using it to shoot at feral dogs who played havoc with the base's tripwires. But he hadn't found any, so he'd returned the pistol and gone back to drinking. Satisfied, the investigators left him to sleep off his beer bender. The day after the shooting, Kathy's bandmates were questioned and made statements. The day after that, they were asked to inspect a lineup of Marines and identify any they'd had any personal dealings with. They picked out a Marine named Thurman as one of the soldiers who'd been going to sell Clive the M16, who'd said he hated a major, and who'd argued with Natalia and Jimmy. Thurman then identified his companion as having been a Marine named Landis. Investigators determined that the bullet that had killed Kathy had entered the club through the mesh screen to the left of the stage. They concluded that it had been fired from beside a jeep 27 metres away because a misfired cartridge was found there along with two discarded beer cans. Four days after Kathy died, investigators announced that they had their man. Sergeant James Killen, who'd borrowed Prohaska and Stockham's 22 pistol, was charged with the murder of Kathy Wayne and confined to a brig awaiting his trial by court-martial. James Killen claimed he was innocent. James Killen had turned 28 the day after Kathy died. He and his seven siblings had been raised in Alabama by their dairy father farmer after their mother walked out on the family. After leaving high school, James married a girl named Dee and joined the United States Marine Corps. Tragically, not long after, upon returning from a 10-day training exercise, James discovered his new bride dead in their home. Dee had died days earlier after being overcome by fumes from a heater. James Killen threw himself into his military career and served in the Marines for the next decade. When Kathy was shot, Killen was just two weeks from ending his third tour in Vietnam. During his time in country, he'd received numerous combat decorations and was well regarded and respected by his mostly younger comrades who affectionately referred to him as Pappy. So why had he suddenly snapped and shot an Australian girl singer he didn't know and whose act he hadn't even been watching? Rumour had it that Killen had actually been aiming for his commanding officer, Major Russell Simmons, who was seated in the front row of the club, and that Kathy had died because she strayed into the firing line. This speculation reached the newspapers. But the man that Killen had supposedly tried to murder, commanding officer Major Russell Simmons, didn't believe a word of it. Interviewed by military newspaper The Overseas Weekly, this is what he said. There is no indication of him being after me or anyone else. This company has been together with me as a team for almost a year. To my knowledge, I've never had any problems with Sergeant Killen. We got along well together. 
Even the prosecution knew there was no evidence for this being a motive and so didn't officially introduce it into Killen's court martial, which commenced in a courtroom in Da Nang on the 27th of October 1969. Instead, the prosecution relied on witness testimony in its case against the accused. Their star witnesses were Prohaska and Stockham, owners of the Illicit 22, and a corporal named Courtney who managed the enlisted men's club where Killen had been drinking the afternoon of the murder. Courtney testified Killen had been on the beers there from about 1pm, that he'd broken up a fight, left at one point, returned and continued boozing and left again not long before the shooting. Courtney also claimed that after the shooting, his roommate, Prohaska, had told him that Pappy was responsible. Prohaska, who'd also been drinking all afternoon, though he denied being drunk, said that Killen had admonished him for using the pistol earlier, but then returned and asked to borrow it so he could shoot at feral dogs. This, Prohaska said, had been about 45 minutes before the shooting. Killen had taken the gun and ammunition given to him by Prohaska and Stockham and then returned shortly afterwards to say the pistol didn't work. Prohaska and Stockham then showed him how to use the faulty weapon. Killen left again. Next time Prohaska saw him, it was about 10pm when news of Kathy's shooting was spreading around the camp. Acting on a hunch... Prohaska said he'd asked Killen why he did it and claimed Killen had said the girl had only been winged and that he'd taken care of the gun, which Prohaska understood to mean he'd gotten rid of it. Stockham corroborated Prohaska's story about Killen borrowing the gun and being given ammunition. But under cross-examination, Prohaska and Stockham who had been raised as brothers, were best friends and who joined the Marines together, admitted that they'd said none of this in their initial sworn statements to investigators. They admitted they'd lied then and had talked to each other about what story they were going to tell. These falsehoods, they said, were because they'd feared they'd be incriminated in the crime and perhaps even charged as accessories. Other witnesses gave a welter of confusing and contradictory testimony about where they had been with Sergeant Killen and when. It seems that everybody had been very drunk that night. Some witnesses said he had left the enlisted men's club around 8pm, which gave him plenty of time to get the gun and commit the crime. But another witness, one who'd been called by the prosecution, threw a spanner in the works by saying that Killen had left much later, around 9.10, making it almost impossible for him to have shot Cathy. The beer cans as evidence also proved problematic. The judge had only admitted them on the proviso that the prosecution could positively tie them to Killen, meaning fingerprints. Yet the prosecution couldn't use the single partial print that it had lifted from one can. Even so, the beer cans were said to be killings because they each had two holes punched in the top. This was before the days of ring pulls. 
The camp's bartender would puncture the top of a can with a hole for drinking. But Killen was known to make a second hole so airflow would allow him to drink quicker. Thing was, this was common practice with many soldiers and hardly conclusive that the beer cans had been his. There were other troubling aspects too. No witnesses placed Killen near the officer's club or at the jeep where he'd supposedly fired the fatal shot. As for that bit of marksmanship, how had Killen shot Cathy from 27 metres away using a faulty short-range pistol on a moonless night when the area around the stage was crowded with soldiers watching through the mesh screen? How had he not hit an onlooker? From where he'd supposedly stood by the beach, Killen could barely have seen anything inside the club, let alone the commanding officer he'd been rumoured to want to kill. Contradictory testimony about timings, lack of eyewitnesses and physical evidence, the absence of any motive and the unlikelihood, if not impossibility, of the bullet being fired from beside the jeep, all of this was raised by the defence. Testifying about the events of that night, Killen said he'd been drinking heavily, consuming as many as a dozen cans between 4pm when he knocked off and the time of the shooting. He said he'd been at the enlisted men's club, gone to see Prohaska and Stockham, borrowed the gun and then returned it before going back to the enlisted men's club. Towards closing, he had bought two cans of Budweiser, but said he'd drunk them on the premises before leaving. Killen said he'd heard about Kathy's shooting as he was exiting the club. Next, he'd gone to see a friend. This man wasn't called to give evidence for reasons that were never explained, and they'd had a cigarette before Killen had gone back to his hooch and collapsed into a drunken sleep. Next thing he knew, he was being woken up and questioned. Troubling and frankly bizarre aspects to the case also weren't pursued during the court-martial. A spent 22 cartridge that was determined to have come from a different weapon to the one used to kill Kathy Wayne had been found in a lieutenant's hooch much closer to the staff and officers' club. This suggested that perhaps there had been a second Mystery 22 fired from this location, perhaps the pistol that had gone missing a month earlier. The fact that band members had argued with Marines who boasted they had access to a variety of guns, including pistols with silencers, and who professed hatred for a major in the audience also wasn't explored. Investigators just said that these men had been interviewed and cleared. But as investigators' notes have never been released, there's no way of knowing how these men were ruled out as suspects. But in the case of these two Marines, there was at least a suggestion of motive, both against a major sitting in the front row of the club and perhaps against the band members who'd threatened to call the MPs on them. Shooting at either of these targets could have put Cathy in the firing line. Killen's defence lawyer also alluded to three witnesses who'd apparently seen Prohaska and Stockham with the 22 after Killen said he'd returned it. But these men couldn't testify. One had died and the other two had been too drunk for any statements to be credible. 
On the 29th of October 1969, the third day of the trial, after closing statements, the jury retired briefly and then brought down its verdict. Sergeant James Killen was guilty of unpremeditated murder and would spend the next 20 years in a naval prison in New Hampshire with hard labour and the loss of all pay and allowances. His rank would be reduced to private and he would be given a dishonourable discharge. In a statement, Killen said, I've given the Marine Corps about 10 years of my life and I just can't believe this is really happening to me. In 1971, the Navy Court of Military Review reviewed the court-martial that had convicted James Killen of Kathy Wayne's murder. They were deeply troubled by the many inconsistencies in evidence already mentioned. But the biggest argument against Killen having received a fair trial was the revelation that the prosecution's star witnesses, Prohaska and Stockham, had been offered grants of immunity. Had the jury known this, their view of the men's testimony and how it differed from their original false statements may have been very different. The Navy Court of Military Review unanimously decided that this testimony had been at least in part induced by the belief they had immunity. Reviewing their statements in this light, James Killen's conviction was set aside and a retrial was ordered. This new trial was held on the 4th and 5th of August 1971 and received new evidence from a witness who said he'd been with Killen at 9.20pm, making it impossible for him to have fired the fatal shot. When the jury delivered its verdict this time, James Killen was found not guilty of Kathy Wayne's murder, was immediately released and returned to civilian life. No further criminal investigation was ever carried out to determine who had killed Kathy Wayne. But more than 30 years later, one man would investigate. I've based this podcast on newspapers and film footage from the time, the official Australian government report of Killen's 1971 court-martial, Mara Wallace's 2003 documentary Entertaining Vietnam and episode 4 of Siobhan McHugh's 1993 radio documentary Miniskirts and Minefields. Little Patty also kindly shared her memories of Kathy Wayne, a girl she described as sweet and beautiful. But many of the details you've heard wouldn't have been possible without the work of a man named Don Morrison, who under the pen name J.D. Owen, wrote and self-published the 2014 book Murder on Stage. A muso who himself had been an entertainer in Vietnam, Don spent years investigating the circumstances of Kathy Wayne's death, using freedom of information to access court-martial records and interviewing witnesses and key players, including Kathy's surviving bandmates and the original prosecutor. Don's biggest scoop was finding James Killen and convincing him to give his first ever interview. 
While the passage of 40 years had dimmed his memory of the minutiae of the case against him, Killen remained adamant he hadn't committed the crime, but said he had a theory about who had. Due to lack of evidence, Don chose not to print this claim, mindful that doing so might only see another man hounded for a murder he didn't commit. I first found out about Kathy's death while reading newspapers from the time of the moon landing. Fascinated by the story, I started research, which led me to Don's book. I had hoped to talk to Don for this show, but was sad to discover I was too late. He passed away in April this year, and this podcast is dedicated to him and to the memory of Kathy Wayne. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love you to leave a review and rating at iTunes. You can find more information about Kathy Wayne, including links to some of her performances, at ForgottenAustralia.com and at the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. This podcast was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.